0: The basic format that we're going to be following this uh, well, the next three or four days. It should be clear from the schedule. But it might wouldn't hurt to just give you a kind of more impressionistic sense of what that actually might look and feel like. We'll effectively be doing a meditation retreat. But it will have within it um, quite a strong component of study, reflection, coming to terms with ideas. But the way these ideas will be presented will always be within the context of making sense of what we do when we sit and when we walk and when we try to live in a more mindful, more attentive, more aware way. The most um, academic bit of the morning will be the seminar at 10 o'clock. And I'm going to be giving you each day for that a printed handout. This is for tomorrow. There's two sides. One is um, some citations from two Pali texts. The latter is just a bunch of terms. There's a copy for each person on the table by the bowl, and by the bell there. So please take one of these before you leave tonight. And if you could read this, either before you go to bed or tomorrow morning after breakfast or whenever, that would be useful. And it would also, it'll be a kind of a cheat sheet, apparently they're called in this country. (laughs) In other words, a lot of the key terms you won't have to be scribbling down. They'll be already there for you. The theme of the retreat is Nagarjuna's uh, Mulamadyamaka Karika, which has been translated probably incorrectly as verses from the center. And I suspect most of you or some of you are familiar with um, this book. But what I want to do is not simply to look at Nagarjuna and go through every chapter verse by verse. In fact, I'll do very little of that. But what I want to do in the mornings is, as it were, to set the, uh, is, to, is to flesh out the context of ideas that are, in a way, essential to Nagarjuna's inquiry. And so tomorrow we'll be looking at Nama Rupa, which is effectively an inquiry into what we mean by consciousness. Nagarjuna makes it clear, and in fact it's almost the defining axiom of his, of his work, that this idea emptiness, which is admittedly a very confusing one sometimes, is equivalent to this idea contingency or paticca samutpada, codependent emergence, dependent origination, however it's translated. I prefer the term contingency and I'll explain why, not now but later. And what I want to always come back to, in a way, particularly in the mornings, is to actually look at how, how contingency, the idea of contingency, of a contingent, conditional world, is um, registered, is explored, is articulated within, within Buddhist doctrine and philosophy. And I think that will very much give us a, a, ground, a groundwork, a framework, within which to be able to get a handle on some of these verses. Um, In the evening, um, at least tomorrow evening and Saturday evening, I'll actually take particular verses and look at at the text itself and do readings from the text. To begin, though, I'd like to look at what... What we might mean by the idea of uh, prasna, um, which is Sanskrit, panya, pali, usually translated as wisdom. In the um, Tibetan translation of, the, of Nagarjuna's key texts, the verses, I'll just call them, they actually translate the title as prasna nama mula karika, which means um, root verses from the middle way or something like that. Or root verses from the center, entitled Prasna. So the text, the Tibetans actually call this book Prasna, Panya, wisdom. So it's clearly a, a key idea, although not actually, and this is a perhaps slightly curious, an idea that Nagar, a word that Nagarjuna uses very much himself. It hardly appears throughout the text but clearly it has something to do with the cultivation of panya, which is usually translated as wisdom. Now, I'm not convinced actually that (laughs) wisdom is the most appropriate translation. I think the problem with that term, although it's quite adequate in many contexts, is that we fail to understand panya, wisdom, as um, a rather multifaceted concept, This is clear from the very early teachings in the Pali Canon, the early teachings of the Buddha, in which he differentiates three kinds of Panya. He talks of um, Shrutamaya Panya, which translates as Panya that comes from hearing, literally. Panya that comes from hearing, wisdom that comes from hearing. And it's here I I can't really sustain the use of the word wisdom. And will prefer to now use the word intelligence. Because this intelligence that comes from hearing, the first level of panya, actually just means the acquisition of information. So in an oral society like that of the time of the Buddha, then you learnt what you know in terms of information by hearing about it and of course we still do this now we gather great deal of information through conversation, through listening to the radio through hearing people talk on television to going to lectures through actually listening to what i'm saying now so that you might actually now have a new bit of information that you didn't know before that panya wisdom actually can also mean just the intelligence that comes from having information but we wouldn't translate that in english as wisdom yet it's still panya This kind of intelligence is not entirely different from the way we use the word when we say, for example, the Central Intelligence Agency. (laughs) And we talk about intelligence gathering, acquiring intelligence, often by surreptitious means. So if, for example, some operative in Moscow or Baghdad or somewhere provides us with some information about what a particular government department in that country is thinking, and maybe a plan they have, they've got some leaked document. Then we've acquired information and we now know something that we previously didn't know, and something which is actually rather useful. Now the Buddha also spoke about this, and for him, it was basically getting, it was, it was, in a sense, ingesting or taking on board the basic information that we find in his various teachings. And so we can relate to Buddhism simply as a body of information, as a body of intelligence that we can gather, that we can remember, that we can, as it were, record, restore. Uh, When I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, we literally had to memorize um, pages and pages and pages of text by heart. Um, and so we basically just recorded the information. And most young monks in a Tibetan monastery or any traditional Buddhist monastery will spend their time reciting the classic texts without having a clue what they mean. Just so they've got them, as it were, on their hard disk. So that when they come to study it ten years later it just pops out with as much ease as a Beatles song will pop out for me. <laughs> so that's the information. But The next phase of panya, wisdom, prasna, intelligence, is called chintamaya panya, which means the intelligence that comes from thinking, reflection. So it's a recognition that just to have the information, the raw facts, is not really sufficient in itself. We need somehow to integrate that information into what we already know. So we think about it, we reflect about it. If we hear something new or learn something new, and if it's challenging or provocative, then it maybe make us rethink everything we've thought we knew about the subject up until that point. It might be information from some other field of of knowledge, the sciences perhaps. And we have to then somehow come to terms with that information. We have to, as it were, bring it into the inner coherence of our world view, and this is what we spend a lot of time doing particularly if we're somewhat intellectually wired, is that we're trying to hold a coherent picture in our minds of what the world is like and what we're doing in this world, what justifies our actions for example, what we believe in. So, but then Chintamaya the intelligence that comes from thinking is also not regarded really as sufficient. It might give us a much clearer sense of our understanding of the world and our place in it, but it might still just remain at the level of philosophical theory. In other words, we might be a professor at a university, we may have studied and understood and internalized as a kind of world view all manner of high-minded ideas but we may not actually have integrated them yet into how we live our lives and this is particularly pronounced for example among scholars who are fascinated by Buddhist texts or Christian texts or Jewish texts and spend their lives studying them and getting to know them but do not actually see these texts or these teachings as, as a challenge to how to live, it's simply about Being a great expert or having a great philosophical satisfaction in knowing this stuff. But it may not have actually translated into affecting the quality of our consciousness, our awareness, our way of being in the world. And so the Buddha recognizes a third kind of intelligence called bhavana mayapanya, which means the intelligence that comes from bhavana, again, a difficult word to translate. It's usually translated as meditation. The, 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 the intelligence that comes from meditation. And here I think we can start more legitimately speaking of wisdom. The, what, the, the insights that come out of meditation are, as it were, those that are more saturated into our mind stream, into our being, such that they're not just things we know or believe, but actually understandings we've arrived at through insight, through experience, and so forth. But the problem with translating bhavana as meditation is that it obscures, again, the richer meaning of the original word. Bhavana literally means to bring into being. It comes from the word bhava, which means being or existence, and that in turn has its root in the Sanskrit bhū. Which means, in fact, to be. It's the same, it's a cognate of the English word be, bhava, bhavana. And it's probably close in meaning to what we mean by cultivation. When we cultivate a plant, for example, we plant a seed in the ground and then it is taken care of, given manure, water, sunlight, and so on. And what was at once only a little seed, then, as it were, comes into being as a plant, as a flower, as a tree, whatever. And in that sense, it has been brought into being. It has been bhavan It has is, it is, it's become... It's come from a potential state into an actual state. Now, meditation, if we extend its meaning to encompass that, is therefore a process whereby we start with what might just be an idea. Let's say the idea that all conditions are impermanent. A classic Buddhist dogma. All all conditions are impermanent. We start out with that information. We memorize that. We then think about it because we we know it's true in a way that everything that's been born will die. But it may not actually have registered in terms of what that actually means for us. In other words, that we who have been born will also die, that we are impermanent because we are conditioned, created beings. Therefore, our life will come to an end. So by reflecting on the information of impermanence, we begin to recognize that it actually can be a significant part of how we understand things, including ourselves. But it's only by reflecting on it to the point where it becomes a kind of underlying awareness, a sensitivity, uh, something we're mindful of, we pay attention to, we notice in things, so that it begin to have a transformative effect such that our understanding of impermanence is almost a kind of felt sense. We become much more acutely attuned to the shifting nature of things, the ephemeral nature of things, the unreliable nature of things, like endlessly shifting, jostling, slipping away, and then things coming into being in their place. So when that becomes experientially valid, then we can talk of bhavana Mayapanya. An intelligence that comes from from, uh, bringing something into being through realization, through transformation, if you wish, through cultivation. And I think we have in this model um, an idea of Panya, of intelligence, as something that grows, something that develops, something that evolves. Certainly not an idea that we can neatly define as just being this. But it also suggests, I feel, a kind of uh, a model of, of education in the broader sense. Education, again, from the Latin, means to draw out. And uh, Socrates, for example, saw himself as, as a midwife, as someone whose task it was to draw forth, to draw out, to give birth to understanding in others which again is similar to the idea of bhavana, bringing something into being. So we have a a model, as it were, of how an idea, and this of course is, in a sense, what you're hearing now, what we'll be discussing over the next days, how that can then be refined into a philosophic conceptual understanding that locks into and makes sense within the way one understands oneself in the world and how that, in turn, can become integrated, internalized, into something that begins to qualify the, the actual nature of our experience, it begins to transform how we are in the world, not just how we think about it. So that is a kind of sketch of, of how I would like to see this retreat operating. So there will be periods of receiving information, There'll be periods of reflection and discussion, um, both in this larger group as, all, as well as in, um, in smaller groups in the latter part of the afternoon, about which I'll explain more tomorrow. And also, hopefully, in your meditation, that when we sit quietly here, that we'll be allowing some of these ideas, some of these thoughts to, to settle down, to, as it were, be ruminated <coughs> over, to somehow be introduced into the, the actual fab- fabric of our understanding, of our experience. And I would, I would hope we would see also that, however much we might disdain ideas and theory in favor of practice, that in fact one can't really have one without the other. And the sort of getting rid of all ideas is not actually, from my point of view, a, a great advance in one's philosophical understanding of things, it actually often is a a willingness to think in a kind of sloppy way. So hopefully we will through these days be looking at at this and many other and and other issues. So not just, I'm not just interested in talking about a particular text and a particular philosophy but how these ideas actually can inform us in such a way that they might actually make a difference to how we live. And to conclude, um, I'd just like to recall uh, an experience I had many years ago when I was a monk studying uh, with Geshe Ramton in Switzerland. This would have been in the late 1970s. And there was one time when Geshe Ramton himself was out of town. He was teaching somewhere else. I can't remember where. And he invited a, a Mongolian lama called Geshe Ngawong Nima, to come down from the other part of Switzerland to teach us in his stead. And perhaps because Geshe Nima was someone new, um, one of the students in the class, one of the other monks said, why is it, Geshe, that we have to to study all this theory? When can we start to really do the practice? (laughs) Because we were doing a lot of things like logic and epistemology, very dry stuff. And the Geshe said, in reply, if, if you really knew how to study, then you would be practicing. <laughs> but if you really knew how to use your mind in this way, then that would be a form of practice. And that's always flagged the, a suspicion, as it were, in this, in this rather too rigid a split between theory and practice, between ideas and experience, which is a rather prevalent kind of dichotomy um, one finds in these kinds of cir- circles um, I think that's all I really need to say Martine is going to now talk about uh, the meditation side of the exercise now do you need these things Martine? Not really. No that's for Dion. Oh, okay Can, Will this extend this lead? Yeah, we don't. yeah go on Well, let's clip it all on. It's
1: like an anchored <laughs> There. So I'm very happy to be with you here. And so I mean, I come a little as an adjunct. But since I am here, I thought I could help out a little. And um, what I thought I could uh, be helping with was with the meditation aspect of the retreat because also as Stephen said it is a study retreat. I think it's very important it seems to me that for the study actually to really penetrate the whole body-mind complex if actually we have time where we quiet and we meditate and we don't actually think so much about maybe what Stephen talked about or reflection or whatever but we come back to something which is very simple and very present in the moment. Actually I think through that what we are working on can percolate better. So at that level I think it's very important to see there is a study aspect which is very essential and which, you know, might make you think, we well, you know he said this, but I never heard this and what about that and da 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 da. And that's I mean you have quite a lot of time to play around with that. <laughs> but also to use a meditation as an opportunity to allow your mind in a way to be bright and that brightness actually to be used in the study part as well. So to become more quiet and more clear at the same time will help you with the study. And so very much to see that there is these two very important elements. They're not in contradiction, on the contrary they are complementary. The study we'll the practice of meditation, the meditation will help the study. And all of you, I mean, some of you are a little more recent to the practice of meditation. Some of you have, as I say, been doing this for 25 years or 20 years, so you kind of know about it. And so the, the only thing I would like to do is to remind you a little about what what do we do when we sit in meditation? I think this is very important. What are we doing sitting here instead of going and playing golf or whatever you might find enjoyable? I mean, we sit here, it's not always enjoyable. There are little kind of aches and pains and various, sometimes we are bright, sometimes we are not. Why do we do this? And I think in terms of Buddhist meditation, let it be in the Tibetan tradition, let it be in the Zen tradition, let it be in the Theravada tradition, I think again, you have to see that there is this two very essential quality that you are cultivating. That's what you are doing. For me, as we sit in meditation, we are not trying to reach certain states. Because my feeling is that a lot of the time you sit in meditation, and there is this little person on the shoulder <laughs> saying, "Well, well, nothing is happening." Ah, something is happening. Ah, 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 ah. This, is this is it, enlightenment. Ooh. And then it goes. <laughs> Where is it gone now, how am I going to get it again? So in a way, there seems to be this little thing here, weird little, what I would call measuring mind, expecting mind, when actually, truly, what you are doing, day in, day out, year in, year out, what do we continue to do it till our deathbed is to cultivate this two quality of concentration and inquiry. And there are many different ways to do this. The Tibetan tradition has its own way, the Zen tradition has its own way, the Theravada tradition has its own way. Then in each of these di- uh, traditions, let it be Tibetan, Theravada of Zen, or many other Buddhist tradition, even within each tradition, there are many different ways to do something. Then even if you choose a breath, you have many different ways to do that. So I think it's very important to see The object or the type is not really what is important. I mean, you choose something because you have to choose something. (laughs) I mean, we have to choose to do something or nothing. I mean, I will talk about the two aspects of meditation. So we generally choose to do something. We're kind of told to do this, that, or another. But why are we concentrating on the breath or on a mantra or on a question or on just awareness itself? is because in that, we're actually doing two things. Cultivating concentration, which leads to quietness, to stillness, to peacefulness, to spaciousness. And that aspect of the meditation is relatively easy to experience. And then there is another aspect, which to me is as important, and sometimes is a little forgotten, which is inquiry, which is vipassana, which you find in... Although you have the Vipassana school, you also find it in the Tibetan and in the Zen tradition. And it's this ability of the mind to be bright, to be illuminating, to inquire, to look deeply within the experience. And that aspect of the meditation is very vital. And what we actually are doing as we meditate is we're trying to have harmony, a balance between the two. A balance between the quietness and the clarity. And that, in a way, we all become, over time, our own teachers. So that sometimes we see we need to bring a little more concentration, sometimes a little more inquiry, sometimes we have to be more loose about it, sometimes we have to be more direct about it. And it's only us who can know what to do, because only we are within ourselves. I think this is a very important point. When you sit in meditation, it would be nice if somebody did it for you, but generally <laughs> nobody can do it but you, and nobody can know what to do but you. I think this is a very essential point. You are all your own teacher. I mean, us here sitting is just as guide, and maybe possibly slight Dharma attainment, but we'll see about that. <laughs> but very much, you are, in a way, you do the meditation, and we also will do our own meditation. Because I'll be sitting with you every meditation period and I will do my own thing and you will do your own thing. So for me, what I want to remind you of is what you are doing is cultivating concentration. Which means that actually you will have what I would call a definite specific object of concentration or a non-specific object of concentration. Because sometimes there is a little battle here. Some people say, you know, you must have an object of concentration. This is very vital. And I think this is very important myself. And then some other people who do more formless meditation will say, no, 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 you get stuck, you're limited, you kind of limit yourself. No, 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 you must just be open. Great. Well, how long are you open? How soon do you get spaced out? This is my question. So what I would recommend is, to me, formless or form, it doesn't really matter what you do. As long as whatever you choose, is a very more specific type or less specific type, that there is concentration and inquiry. There is quietness and clarity. So if you choose a more specific aspect of meditation, which means generally you choose an object of concentration, you might choose a mantra, you might choose a visualization, you might choose a reflection on a theme, you might choose the breath, the sensation, the sound. In the Zen tradition, you might choose a question. Whatever. It doesn't matter what the object of concentration is because the object is not there because it's sacred, but the object is there to remind you to come back. And when you come back to the object, you don't just come back to the breath or to the visualization of the question you come back to awareness. So the object actually is an anchor to awareness so that you don't go too far away. This is the main point of the object. You go off and, oops, you come back. You go off and you come back. This is, in a way, what I find helpful with an object at the beginning, is that you know, it brings you back to the object and to awareness in that moment. Then there is a more formless meditation type. When actually the object, you could say, is awareness itself. And that actually requires great concentration to really sit here and be totally aware of yourself in this moment. You're not spacing out. No way. (laughs) You're really sitting here and you're really totally aware without grasping at anything. Just being aware of the totality of yourself with the environment in this moment. And that also is a fine way to meditate. And then there is the inquiry part. And the inquiry part, again, can be done in many different ways. In the Tibetan tradition, the inquiry part will be more about investigating the emptiness aspect of the experience. In the Zen tradition, the inquiry part will be more this questioning, repeated questioning by using koans. In the Theravada tradition, the inquiry part will be to really look, as you look at the object, to experience in that moment the changing nature within the object and how it comes about, its conditioned nature. So you are coming away, you see the object in a different way, you experience it in a different way. And then in the formless type of practice, the inquiry, which I think is a very fine inquiry actually, is that you are totally present, totally aware of everything, but with a difference. That you do not grasp at anything and you do not reject anything. So we are in this very wide open awareness, which is in a way with no grasping and no negative grasping which is rejecting. You are just aware, in a very clear, illuminating way. So, just to remind you of what you are doing. So, cultivating concentration and inquiry in this way, form with form, or form with formlessness. And then, cultivating quietness and clarity. And through that, actually for me, developing creative awareness. And then, of course, the manifestation of the creative awareness is wisdom and compassion. And so it will not only be here, and I think it's very important to remind ourselves that there are four postures. That there is, we'll be doing sitting meditation, walking meditation. But if people have any ailment, if they have a problem with their back or any other physical ailment, then they might want to use, possibly not in this room because it's a bit of a small room, but they might have to do it in their own room and do lying down meditation. Because I think this is a very good way to meditate, to try to meditate as you lie down. And then, of course, there is standing. But again, standing meditation is a good posture if you can do it. Physically, some people can do it longer than others. So, reminding that there are these four postures. This is not just in the sitting. Also, there is a walking, lying down, and standing. And then there is a silence. And the silence is also part of the practice. I think it's important to see that you actually will be more, uh, you, are, you will be, have an hour, about 45 minutes of discussion with Stephen, where everybody will kind of, you know, there'll be questions and answers and comments. Then there will be the home group when there will be again discussions. So, in a way, there will be time where you can talk about various things. And then on the last day, on Sunday, at breakfast, we'll break the silence and then they kind of, we can get to know each other more through communication. But why do we have the three day and a bed in silence? Is because it really helps, I think, at three levels. One level is that it helps with the meditation. As you have less input and less output, then it's much easier to be quiet, to be still, to in a way rest in the moment. This is what we're using these three days to study, to meditate, but to also rest in yourself in this moment. And using the silence for that as well. The next one about the silence is that actually to be in silence together. I think this is again a very wonderful practice, because generally when we are together with people we have to talk and we generally say, you know, where do you live, who you are, what, do you, what is your work, and you know, which tradition do you come from, or whatever. And in the silence we get to know each other as human beings, because for me the practice, The compassion, the wisdom comes from this knowing each other as human beings. We all breathe together and coming back to that, that we're all here together, we're all supporting each other and can we be together in a different way? Can we be in the silence together? doesn't mean that we have to be morose or stern or too serious. If you want to smile at each other, you can, no problem. But please don't get into pantomime, if possible. And to just use these three days as to be together in the silence, to communicate in a different way, to be with each other in a different way. And the third reason for the silence, which for me is also very important, is the fact that we, it's okay to be by ourselves. It's okay to just become friends with ourselves. We don't need somebody to tell us, yes, you're okay, you are, you know, you're great. We can just do that by being with us, resting in our being, resting in this human being. Before we think, I am fantastic, I am terrible, or whatever, we are a human being with the ability to be wise, to be compassionate, to respond, to be creative. And so you know, we're resting in that. And using the silence and as opportunity to become more deeply, you a know, way, friendly with ourselves. So that's why I would encourage to try to Uh, Cultivate the silence during these uh, three days and a half. And I think that's all I want to say for now. And uh, possibly about the posture. I mean, some of you have really sat for a long time, and I see some of you are sitting so well, and here am I, sitting on a chair, (laughs) because I have a bad sciatica. So I cannot, I mean, I had an operation recently, and now I can't sit on the floor for more than two minutes. So I admire you by sitting on the floor. This is wonderful. But again, be careful with the posture. Remember that you want to have a, a that you feel comfortable, you feel stable. Uh, you might, if some of you, if you knew a little to the practice, you might want to experiment with the cushion and alternate with a chair. If you sit, what is important on the chair, on the cushion, is to have the back straight. This is very essential. So if you sit on a chair, maybe sit in the middle of the chair, I think it's better. Your shoulder are open, and then there is a wonderful thing about the eyes. I love this, because you know one school will say, you must close your eyes, otherwise you can't awaken. Then the, the other school will say, you must have them half open, otherwise forget it. And then you have the third school say, you must have them wide open. You know, wonderful, they all have such different ideas. And this is all in, to, in Buddhism. And I would say generally, if, do whatever you feel is comfortable. But if you feel a little sleepy, you might want to keep the eyes half open or wide open. And if you feel a little agitated, you might want them to have them closed. So just, you know, again, being your own teacher with this. Kind of, you know, what is the most comfortable posture? The way to have my eyes. And then to just sit there and then... Cultivate concentration and inquiry in the best way for you. What is beneficial for you in this moment? And in the morning at 9 o'clock, this is just for if there is a few people who are not totally so familiar with the practice, who wants to have a little more suggestion about what to do, then we can have a little meeting at 9. And then whoever will come, I look at you know what is it they want to know more about, and then we can look at. This will be very much nuts and bolts of practice. You know, very technical about is a posture, about concentration, about inquiry, meditation state, whatever, which we relate very much to the meditation as we will practice it during this uh, few days. Good. Shall we do it? (laughs) So shall we do it for, what do you think, Steve? 8.30, 830. So let's do it for 15, 20 minutes because you've come from far, you might be a little tired. So if you find a comfortable posture, uh, if you pass it to me. So finding a comfortable posture, we feel grounded, settled in this moment, in this place. The back is straight, the shoulders are open, the head is resting lightly on the shoulders, There is a slight feeling of elongation, of straightening the back, but not rigidly. And then gently resting our attention on the object of concentration, the anchor to awareness, not fighting with the object, but resting in it. Whatever it is, all the way is just resting in open awareness. but in a way it's to remember our intention, to be aware, to be awake. And so we come back again and again to concentration, to awareness, to being present, to the full experience of this moment. Rejecting. We are focusing on the object of concentration, but within a wide open awareness. If there are sounds, sensations, thoughts, we are aware of them, but we do not grasp nor reject them as we remain focused, resting our attention on whatever we have chosen to focus on. So now if uh, you feel you want to continue to sit more, please feel free to do so. This room is always available for that. Uh, But for some people who might have come from far, they might be tired, they might want to go and rest, you could also do walking meditation. And then we'll meet again here tomorrow at quarter to seven for the first sitting in the morning. Please have a good night rest. Mm
0: And please take one
1: of these. Thank you you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.